Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Purdy from the Australia Indonesia Centre. Today's topic is sex and sexuality. As we head towards a presidential and legislative election, it appears increasingly likely that issues of morality, gender, sexuality will be prominent on both sides of the campaign. To explore this topic with us, we're joined by anthropologist Sharon Graham Davies. Hello and welcome, Sharon, to Talking Indonesia. Thank you for being there. Thank you so much for the invitation. Now, Sharon, in your very highly acclaimed and wonderful edited book with Linda Bennett, uh, Sex and Sexualities in Contemporary Indonesia, one of the assertions that you start that book or you open the book with is that you're seeking to negate these oversimplified claims that Indonesia is a sexually repressed nation. Can you start maybe by speaking a little bit to that? Tell us why there is such a claim that Indonesia is sexually repressed and tell us what the real picture is. So Linda and I were in Bali and I, I can actually just remember now we were driving along in a taxi and we, we went to a beach and we were watching the sunset and we were reflecting on how our experience of Indonesia is often quite different from that that we would see in the popular press, Western popular press particularly, and also in other media and academic outputs that would refer to Indonesia as a society that didn't like to talk about sex, didn't really like to have sex, and, and it was something that was quite reserved and only happened within marriage. And our experience just of being long-time visitors and scholars of Indonesia was that people talk about sex a lot and, you know, have really quite amazing sexual adventures. And so we really wanted to draw a book together that almost in a way celebrated that side of sexuality in Indonesia that wasn't necessarily represented in the information that was available. So that's what we set out to tell that other side of the story. And I don't know whether there was something particular about Linda and I that we would attract lots of stories about sexuality and things <laughs> like that. But we wanted to really share that kind of a story and we didn't feel that that was being represented about Indonesia enough. Right. So the oversimplified claim, was it really, you think, something that outsiders were projecting or was it something coming also from inside Indonesia? I, I think definitely both. I, I think it was very strategic for religious organisations and, and politicians and government in Indonesia to present a story that there were good sexual citizens that just would have sex with in very limited confines of heterosexual marriage. And the West, of course, often just gets a few tidbits of information about other countries and they pick up just a few things that they think an audience might be interested in. And, you know, a society that is sexually repressed is something that they would pick up on and sell overseas. And so the understory of that often wasn't getting told. So tell us some of those stories. Describe for us a little bit about the complexity of sexuality and gender norms. Well, one of the things that often doesn't get talked about actually in Indonesia or outside and something that I think is really strategic given the kind of repression that is happening at the moment is that Indonesia, like much of Southeast Asia and the Pacific, has a really rich history of gender and sexual diversity. And by saying that, I certainly don't mean that it's been any kind of a sexual paradise. There has been 
as there has been everywhere, persecution and harassment and discrimination of anything that is seen as slightly different or that is not politically strategic. So there's always been discrimination and harassment. But alongside of that, there's a rich history of different types of gendered and sexual beings being given a position in society. And I think there's certainly dangers in perhaps romanticizing a past in Indonesia that was just tolerant of all sorts of sexualities and genders. But I think it's also strategic to bring that into conversation, particularly in relation to what's happening at the moment. So a lot of politicians and religious leaders currently in Indonesia are talking about homosexuality being a Western import and something that is very foreign Mm -hmm. to Indonesia. But one of my favorite stories is from a Portuguese explorer, missionary, merchant who came to Sulawesi in the 1500s. And his mission was, amongst other things, to convert everybody in the region to Christianity. And he tried his best to get people to convert to Christianity. And what he saw as his greatest impediment and the reason that the local rulers went with Islam, because there were Muslim emissaries there as well, trying to convince the population to go with Islam, he saw the greatest impediment to people becoming Christian were And he writes about an order of Bisu priests, these transgender shamans. So he writes about their homosexuality and other things. And it was because of them that the local leaders decided to go with Islam. So when I hear clerics at the moment talking about homosexuality being a Western import and not something Indonesian, I think back to the 1500s and how if Bisu, these transgender shamans, if they hadn't had such power, parts of Indonesia at least might have become Christian, but they became Islam precisely because of the influence of these priests. So Mm. contemporary Islam has a lot to thank history of LGBT in Indonesia for. Wow, how ironic. You mentioned the Bisu in South Sulawesi. This is your field of research very much about the Bugis five genders. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I, I went originally in 1998 to start my PhD research, and I was very interested in gender, but I had a particular lens that gender was, you know, men and women, and I wanted to look at how they related in terms of, I was going to look at factory work, I think, and the relations of men and women in factories. And then when I went on an initial scoping exercise, people were talking about, if I'm interested in gender, why am I just looking at this men and women? I should be looking at different types of genders and how gender kind of interplays. And of course, gender is a very new term, you know, in English, let alone elsewhere. So that wasn't necessarily the term that was used. But people were talking about how diverse people are embodied and their expressions and gender and sexuality. So it was being suggested to me that I look at this range of different types of what we might frame as gender. And in Bogis in South Sulawesi, there's five terms that are usefully applied to types of gendered beings. And so framing them as five genders is certainly problematic in some senses, but it's also a heuristic in allowing us to think about how the world is divided impossibly into just two categories. It's unreasonable to expect a population of five billion of us to tick just one of two boxes. There's surely much more diversity in that. And so my PhD kind of became more focused on looking at what this thing is that we call gender, at least that we call in English gender, and what might that mean in a wider context. 
So, as you say, there are so many ironies when we're talking about contemporary Indonesia and those who look back at history sometimes can see them more clearly. And you've written elsewhere about this difference between visible and invisible genders or sexualities in Indonesia. And the fact that Indonesia is not, as you say, yet a punitively homophobic state like its neighbours, Singapore and Malaysia, but in fact has been extremely tolerant of, well, LGBT really. How has this been the case? How is the Indonesian story different from Singapore and Malaysia in its relationships or how it's tolerated these more complex ideas of gender? So certainly up until 2016, Indonesia, I think, has been very different in its relationship to diverse genders and sexualities. And I think a key part of that reason is its colonial legacy. So Malaysia and Singapore were colonised by the British and the British brought with them very strict laws about penalising and criminalising homosexuality. So in Malaysia and Singapore, homosexuality is illegal. Indonesia was colonised by the Dutch that didn't have such a law and they had a different format for colonisation. So the Dutch didn't necessarily bring all their laws, even if they had had one, about criminalising homosexuality. So Indonesia up until today, and I can't speak to whether that will be the case for very much longer, but it has never had a law that criminalises homosexuality. But just because there's an absence of a law that criminalises it, doesn't necessarily mean things have always been rosy. And there are no safeguards or laws protecting LGBT Indonesians either. So while it's been difficult to persecute people at a criminal level, certainly other types of discrimination and persecution happened. And a lot of that has stemmed from its colonial legacy. And I think also particular groups, particularly in South Sulawesi, which is where I know best, has had a community of gender and sexually diverse people that have made important contributions to society. I can remember in the early 2000s, I was in Sulawesi and I went along to the annual election for the president of the Waria organization. So the trans women organization was electing its new president for the next term. And there must have been a thousand Waria there all to vote, but also to participate in other types of activities. And the mayor came along to this election and made a really rousing speech about the importance of Waria for the local community, how, if anything adversely affects the Waria community, everybody in that society will be affected because Waria play important roles in organising weddings, in doing types of entertainment and general support. And he ended by saying, long live Waria. And it was such a key point in my early research that he was a mayor with all his power and things that comes with that, really supporting that local community. So I think LGBT communities in Indonesia have had types of support like that that have enabled inclusion in society that hasn't necessarily been evident in Singapore and Malaysia. Okay. And so you mentioned 2016 and the shift happening there. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in 2016 and what changed? So in 2016, in January, a minister announced that Waria and LGBT organisations at universities should no longer receive university funding. So I think this statement, you know, it's a sad statement to make, but it's not necessarily terribly dramatic that a university stops supporting a particular organisation within its campus. However, it was reported in the media and then it all went viral that the minister had stated that LGBT themselves would be banned from universities. So this is a dramatic 
statement. If LGBT are suddenly excluded from being accepted at university. And as a result, there was some movement amongst LGBT organisations to rally together to repel that statement. And then conservative ministers and politicians and religious leaders saw glimpses of a rising LGBT movement that they saw as quite threatening, that perhaps an LGBT movement would start to take over Indonesia or that they would claim things like wanting marriage equality, for instance. Mm. So then there became a big backlash. And a lot of ministers and religious leaders I think many of whom were not necessarily homophobic or didn't really care either way, saw a potential to get a lot of support for perhaps an upcoming election or if they were trying to move up the ranks of a religious organisation. They saw that if they espoused this anti-LGBT vitriol, they might get support. And then all sorts of organisations, including the Indonesian Psychiatry institution came out saying that we have to deal with this LGBT problem. They need to be reformed and cured and and all sorts of things. Ridiculous statements like let's bathe in hot water LGBT to cure them or make them stop eating two-minute noodles. And it just became this enormous furor about anti-LGBT. So I think that was the kind of a key start. But of course, it had been simmering along but this I think really caused a big explosion you know this is when LGBT became a word our book the sex and sexualities book that came out in 2015 and has just been translated and launched last month in Indonesian there is not a single mention in that whole book of the acronym LGBT right because in 2015 it wasn't a word that anybody used or knew and now in January 2016 it felt like everybody knew what LGBT was. Well, they thought they knew. They knew what it was, but it had currency. Right. Currency, this social currency that you talked about, which is uh, more broadly around morality, isn't it, at the moment in Indonesia and the political strategic kind of gains that you're outlining that are there to be had when, you know, there's an election coming. Why do you think that issues like this, debates like this, have such social currency in Indonesia? I've been thinking for a while about my next book, and I think it's going to be called The Fear of Sex. And I think I want to investigate precisely that question, because in so many ways, I can't fathom why someone who might be a reasonably rational human being and and potentially someone who's good to have a chat with gets up one day when it's cold and stormy and goes out to protest about the activities of two consenting adults and what they do in the privacy of their own home. Like it just beggars belief as to why they should even care about that. Mm. Why do these issues of morality have such pulling power Mm -hmm. that people will go out and protest? I mean, a lot of the people in the anti-LGBT protests in Indonesia wouldn't necessarily have ever had any contact with someone who was LGBT. And I wouldn't be surprised if they don't actually know what LGBT even refers to. And yet it's scare tactics, I think, that motivate people. And so if I was a politician or a religious leader and I was trying to get votes or support, I create fear around something. And then I come in to say that I'll save the day by banning it or making it illegal. Mm. So as to why it's, it's so powerful, I don't know, other than the fact that people can get swept up in a kind of fear mm-hmm. and then someone who says that they can solve this problem attracts a lot of attention. And if we look back at the history, can you say a little bit about the New Order period and, and what was the kind of lay of the land there in terms of morality and, and maybe questions? 
questions like these. Was the scene set in the past for this kind of debate? So my journey with Indonesia kind of started in 1998, which is the year I started my PhD. And I arrived in Makassar in South Sulawesi, and I was at Hassanuddin University. And each day I would be going home and there's a line of military police standing gun to gun and I would have to squeeze through them to get to my dorm room. And the feeling then, there was certainly a lot of fear and uncertainty and there was a lot of dreadful things happening. There was really intense anti-Chinese rioting and a lot of looting and burning of buildings. But there was always kind of a glimmer that things, particularly from 1999 onwards, that things were slowly getting better, Mm -hmm. that reforms were taking place, that Chinese names were now permissible, you could teach Chinese language, there was a minister for women's empowerment set up, human rights discourse started to take hold. So there was, I think every year that I went back, there was growing optimism of Indonesia becoming progressively more accepting of human rights and and that kind of discourse. And it might have been two steps forward, one step back, but there certainly was a feeling that things were getting better, particularly for minorities and for women and other types of groups. And we saw this through such things as a lot of UN funding coming in that could be funneled towards LGBT organizations. And often it was strategic to couch it around perhaps reproductive health or HIV prevention rather than explicitly gay rights. But there was certainly money coming in and those organizations were growing and doing amazing work. And I think every year, even with the pornography law, which was a bit of a setback in terms of that trajectory, Mm -hmm. I think there's been nothing quite as frightening really as the events which started in 2016. So have those events in 2016 led to anything concrete? You mentioned the Psychiatrist Association and their statements about the mental disorders of homosexuals and things like that. As you you said, Indonesia still has not criminalised homosexuality. Is there an indication that that might happen, that something more concrete like that might happen? That is my sense. There was a law just narrowly defeated, and I think in the Supreme Court, and I think it was five judges ruled against and four judges ruled for a changing of the criminal code that would make illegal any kind of sex outside of heterosexual marriage. So it's not just the LGBT community that will be penalized by such laws, but for everybody and anybody who has sex outside of marital heterosexuality would be criminalized. And it very narrowly was defeated, so five to four, I think. Mm. And with the national elections coming up next year, and with Jokowi's new running mate, Amin, who There's a picture of him holding an anti-LGBT placard. I'm really worried if Jokowi gets back in, which I think most people think is likely, I'm really worried about the types of laws that will be passed that will be really in a frame of persecuting LGBT and all sorts of other people. So you're feeling that that is the way that things are likely to go. You mentioned that in the early 2016, those months when there was the, you know, the minister was making these statements, then the LGBT community kind of organized and then there was the backlash. What's happened within the LGBT community? It's been pretty devastating. I mean, just to give one example, so a lot of funding that was coming both from Indonesia and overseas was being targeted towards HIV prevention and support with HIV. 
And so the LGBT community, and particularly the gay community, the transgender community, and men who have sex with men, could access antiretroviral drugs, they could access HIV information and a support community by going along to one of the LGBT organisations. After 2016, members of FPI, so the um, Islamic Defenders Front and police, would be at the, at the front door of these LGBT organisations. So if people did show up to get their antiretroviral drugs or even to get tested for HIV, they could almost be arrested or at least harassed by people there. So, of course, no one went anymore. So people stopped getting access to the medicine. They stopped going in to get tested for HIV. And that has disastrous consequences for the whole of Indonesia. And leading into that, it's not just, again, the LGBT community that are adversely affected by that, but the rise in new HIV cases is happening fastest, not amongst the LGBT community or sex workers or intravenous drug users, mm. but amongst heterosexually married women. And that's happening because of the shame and the stigma of talking about sex. So suddenly, if you're going to criminalize sex outside of marriage, and a woman who's been entirely faithful to her husband goes along to a doctor and finds out she has HIV, to accuse her husband then of having sex outside of marriage is not going to be good because at the very least he might end up in prison, which doesn't necessarily help you. No. And just the shame around that. So women aren't getting tested. They're not seen as possibly having HIV because they're, you know, happily married housewives. Mm. And so the repercussions of that for HIV positive mothers passing HIV onto their babies, which can in many cases be prevented if there's knowledge and access to information and medicine. So this whole repression of sexuality has many knock-on adverse effects. So I'm going to ask a question, but I think you've already answered it about what part you think this kind of moral panic, if we want to say, is likely to have in the forthcoming election. Obviously, you're predicting that it, it's going to be an issue that will have legs and continue. Yeah, I think many of us were quite surprised, or maybe we shouldn't have been by the running mate of Joko Amin, who is an incredibly conservative religious leader mm. who is very clearly homophobic and in many other ways not the type of person best place to lead Indonesia on a progressive journey. And so the reason that he was elected as the running mate was because Jokowi in many circles is seen as perhaps too liberal, that he's not Islamic enough and that the government wants to present itself as this very religious, conservative, indigenous Indonesian party that people can vote for. And so they must be assured that there is significant support for that type of team to go mm. into the next election. And so I think that signals that both there's very conservative moves at a political level and a religious level and segments of society that will vote for that. And so as you've described it, the LGBT groups have kind of gone to ground a little bit. Is it something that human rights activists are focused on? Human rights are doing amazing. So Andrea Sassono and Dede Otomo and, you know, there's some really amazing key figures who are important enough in a sense that they can say these types of things because they have such a profile that they're able to do that. 
So there's certainly a lot of outspoken people who are mm. rallying against that, but it seems a very small minority of yeah. people. Yeah, and it's quite, I mean, again, it's ironic. I mean, those voices you mentioned, you know, they were there in the New Order more or less mm-hmm. as well as the yep. advocates for this kind of thing. So where are the young people? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's certainly certainly a few who are doing so. Hendra Julius, who's just been at Sydney, is very outspoken and, and doing things. It's very difficult in an environment as Indonesia is at the moment, A, to get your voice heard. So yeah. who's going to pick up you know, these kind of counter narratives? What media organisation is going to do that to bring it into the mainstream? And also the danger of that. If you've got a government and religious organisations who will literally come to your house or to your you know, your place of work and harass you and detain you. The police have been literally going along hotels and looking in windows, checking who's registered and and checked in and going into rooms and taking people to police stations for questioning at the very least. Mm. And so it's a very difficult and frightening environment to be outspoken about issues. So a long-term strategy of the LGBT community has been to do things often in a more under-the-radar type of way. And, yeah. and so those things are still happening, but they're not heard as much because there's just such a focus on these larger political organisations and religious organisations that are dominating and making people just very wary of speaking out. And there was a moment, I mean, is it still the case that, you know, quite an active kind of gay kind of culture and, you know, film and video culture, you know, producing TV serials and YouTube serials and things like that? Is that still permitted? I just saw Benjamin Hegarty, who's doing some work on trans issues, sent a link for a new bill that has been coming that has banned Waria from appearing on television oh or in commercials. Right. And Waria, so trans women have been such a mainstay, mostly in comic kind of roles, but still a, a, a presence in all types of media. And in the early 2000s, Nia Donatis' film Arisan was, you know, the first one that had a gay couple appearing as central characters. They weren't mm. comic relief, they were actual central characters. And so that built into this kind of sense that from the early 2000s, Indonesia was becoming more progressive in terms of gender and sexuality inclusion. But since 2016, there's all these little kind of laws and bylaws that have sought to penalise and criminalise any kind of gender and sexual diversity. And having Waria not be able to appear on commercials or television is a really dramatic change in the mediascape of Indonesia. Okay, we've gone with a very negative outlook. Do you have anything positive to say, Sharon? Do you know, I think if you'd asked me at any time until January 2016, I was always positive. And I reread not when we were doing the translation of the Sex and Sexualities book, I reread our introduction. Mm. And it's full of optimism that has so dramatically changed in the last two years that it almost feels like, you know, we were describing a different place. And mm. so maybe that's my optimism, that in 2015, we had an introduction that was you know, of course, with all the harassment and discrimination, but we also had a positive lens looking into the future of Indonesia in terms of gender and sexuality. We had that in 2015. So maybe my optimism is that it can radically change again, that we can go from 2018, where it looks really not at all 
positive, not only for LGBT Indonesians, but everyone there, that it's just getting more and more oppressive, which is not good for anybody, that maybe in a few more years it will be completely changed back to a type of Indonesia that I've known for the last 20 years, and this might be some kind of aberration. Well, on that note, thank you very much for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Thank you. That was Sharon Graham-Davies from Auckland University of Technology. Talking Indonesia will return on the 27th of September. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.